leftovers, or the DMV, or house cleaning, or Chumba Casino always brings the fun. Play over a hundred different games online for free from anywhere. You could redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. Live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. We're prohibited by law. T plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Thinking of switching banks and looking for one that is friendly, takes the time to get to know you, and is invested in the community? Then it's time you met the folks at Arundel Federal Savings Bank, your hometown community bank. From first homes to refinancing and car loans to checking accounts, we've been helping local residents and their families with their financial needs since 1906. Visit us at ArundelFederal.com. After all these years, it's no wonder we treat you like family. Member FDIC Equal Housing Lender. NMLS number 671636. Welcome to Garden Views. Interesting conversations with interesting people who have done and or are doing interesting things. So sit back and enjoy. Welcome everyone into Garden Views. This week we have with us another special guest with regards to the laws of space and we're going to talk a little bit about international law and then try to apply it to the emerging and growing areas of space. Any listeners know this has been probably the focus of the show or at least the singular singular um, most recurring issue and we're very pleased to have with us um, this episode uh, Professor uh, Dr. Henry R. Hertzfeld. He's with the George Washington University Elliott School of International Affairs. Good afternoon, Professor, and thank you very much for joining us. Nice to be here, and I uh, look forward to uh, our conversation. Excellent. Um, if you could just give a quick bio of yourself, uh, you know, to, so people know who you are and what you've done, that kind of thing. Uh, well, I really have two expertise, uh, two areas of expertise in space. One is in economics of space, and the other is space law. Excuse me. Uh, I spent some time at the Bureau of Economic Analysis when I first came to Washington, moved over to the administrator's office as NASA's economist for, for about six or seven years, and uh, many years ago, did consulting and worked with the National Science Foundation quite a bit. And I've been at GW for 30 years now, and for about the last uh, 18 years or so, I've been teaching a course in the law school here at GW, although I faculty appointments in the Elliott School uh, in space law and uh, I've been a member of the Space Policy Institute uh, here in the Elliott School and was director for several years uh, as well. And um, so I take a slightly different approach to uh, law than many uh, uh, international lawyers, but one that still is consistent with um, the legal practice uh, in space uh, and the um, <clears throat> obligations that we have um, uh, we, we have made under the space treaties. Okay. Well, we'll get into that obviously, and and try to figure out what that means for you know the average listener. Um, and I think probably a nice starting point would be what are sort of the some of the main principles of international law that exist, how are they enforced if they're enforced at all, who enforces them, and with, uh, you know, obviously that's a, well, it's an entire world body of a question, 
uh, but the ones that most likely should or could apply to the emergent area of space law. Well, I think you're starting with the end point on okay. rather than the uh, beginning point when you're talking about enforcement, uh, particularly in international law. International law is, of course, based on uh, <clears throat> treaties, uh, agreements between nations, and um, they're really only as good as the willingness of nations within to their own populations of um, abiding by the obligations under their treaties and then enforcing them locally. There's no state police force or uh, and even most of the treaties call for diplomatic negotiations. Right. The peaceful uh, use of space doesn't isn't very clear whether that includes a police force or not. I don't even think that was envisioned. Yeah. Uh, the treaties go back to the 1960s and 1970s, the space treaties, that is. They are tied to the UN Charter and they are tied directly to general international law and principles of international law. So that they, this is not a, uh, and it's an area of specialty and there are special conditions in space that are different than uh, other parts of international law, but because of the technology required and uh, some of the agreements, such as uh, no sovereignty in space. But on the other hand, uh, they are inextricably tied to, uh, to international law. Uh, one of the treaties does mention the possibility of a liability convention, that is, of a claims commission, which is more like an arbitral board. We can talk about that later. But nonetheless, enforcement has to be national, just as carrying out the um, obligations under these treaties requires each nation to pass their own laws to um, interpret and um, and to enforce, as I said before, those uh, the obligations of the treaties. And because nations are different, cultures are different, economies are different, uh, there's consistency, but there's the, the uh, interpretations are not identical in every nation. Yeah, I mean, I think that's sort of been something that we've been trying to dance around, well, maybe stress on, on this show at various times, I guess, depending on who the guest is, probably, um, because guests are very important and you don't want to you know, there might be a professor who's, you know, very uh, progressive leaning. There might be someone who's very business leaning. And, you know, you, I'm not, I don't argue with guests. It's just not something I do. But well, I will. It's fun too. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, maybe next show. Um, yeah. Maybe we'll get to know each other a little bit better. Um, yeah, I'm kidding, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, the point is that we try to in part to the audience, the listening audience, we're probably lay people who hear the term international law thrown out a lot. They hear the terms war crimes thrown out a lot. And it's very difficult in part that international law really isn't so uh, uniform. It's hard to enforce. It's easier with civil commerce, with partners who want to be civil in commerce. Um, basically, transportation and trade are the probably the most consistent things. I mean, even in IP, I mean, you know, you know, half the people you know are walking around with with either knockoff Gucci or Chanel. I mean, you know, if those companies can't police it, who, who can? And you know, and there's conflicts all over the world that might violate international law. You know, but yeah. who, who's going to stop them? Um, you know, circumstances where Iraq invaded Kuwait 
30 years ago or 32 years ago, you know, where the, almost the whole world unites, get, that's pretty rare. Um, so, you know, that problem obviously applies maybe even more f- so in space where there are no countries with, you know, militaries, there are no courts. And when somebody finds a $30 trillion asteroid or something, you know, the, the math with regards to the Hooke's theory, which we have talked about in the show before, you know, maybe the equation stops a little bit. And there's not just state actors, there's also private actors. Um, and then you get, you know, sort of, you know, the, the, the Caribbean in, in the 17th century, you know, you got, you know, sort of uh, Nassau being like the haven of privates or, I uh, mean, Nassau, Bahamas right. and, and or the, you're, you're, you're covering many, many, many topics. I am. I, I, yeah, I do that. Yeah, please. Maybe, yes. Maybe we, we should focus a little bit. Yeah. Keep, keep me on a line. Okay. Um, you're, you're, of course, as I said before, you're 100% right. It's hard to enforce international law. And yet, on certain areas, like commerce and trade, uh, it wouldn't exist unless we could, uh, nations could enforce the provisions. This space, keep in mind, uh, really became a reality out of space and exploration with the launch of Sputnik in the late 1950s and uh, satellites, successive satellites after that. And for many years, the only access to space was through either the United States or the Soviet Union, now Russia, of course. Uh, that's cha- and lots of things have changed in space, and particularly in the last 15 or 20 years. Which, now you're going to hear the economists come out in a little bit. And, that's uh, okay. It's moved from an environment of research and development, at least in low Earth orbit, and maybe a little further out to today, where we're talking about many things that we enjoy terrestrially have become dependent on space. Now, it doesn't mean if we our satellites all went off uh, one day, we'd be totally uh, back in the Stone Age. But the point is that the space capabilities and applications, particularly in telecom and um, remote sensing and GPS and so on, have become integrated into our equipment and our um, uh, and also many things such as distribution of electricity and water and other things. So that the timing devices, the, um, the coordination, both nationally and globally in some cases, is very much dependent on the satellites that are up there. So, uh, and as you mentioned, there are more private companies involved in the 1960s and 70s. Keep in mind, the treaties were negotiated by an arm of the United Nations called Topolis Committee on Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. They reflect their t- that those days at that time when only governments had objects and satellites in space. Now, there were a few communication satellites in the United States by uh, run by AT&T and others that were privately owned, but heavily, heavily regulated. Today they're not. So as the technology has changed in the last 15, 20 years, we've become more dependent on our space capabilities. Not only us, but other nations using space capabilities as well are more vulnerable. And not only governments, but 
private uh, companies are also involved. He began to mention that uh, perhaps Caribbean nations or others, sort of uh, using the maritime equivalent of flags of convenience, will have lax laws and try to attract companies and other uh, other people with cheaper, uh, basically to save money on regulatory and other uh, considerations. But Article 6 of the Outer Space Treaty, which is the master document ratified, came into force in 1967, makes states responsible for their national activities in space and requires authorization of the state and of, of uh, for not only uh, government satellites, but those of non-governmental entities. That's the language in that in Article 6. Article 7 deals with liability, and it makes states liable without limits in money or in time for their uh, space objects, meaning that and they, uh, a small nation that tries to liberalize its laws is opening itself up for potentially, not saying it will happen, but potentially a very large obligation to pay for any damages to other nations that, that, that their satellite launched in that country or paid for, launched by that country. So one point and one maybe clarification for the audience. Firstly, yeah. if you ever want to use a country's name or an area name as sort of the uh, malfeasor, but you don't want to throw anyone under the bus, we use Jeff Zikistan here because I'm Jeff. So Jeff Zikistan is sort of our, our straw man, bad actor state um, uh, to be safe. The other thing is it's, it sounds like that states have basically endorser or co-signing liability for activities in their country. So even if, say... The not, not for activities in the country, activities in space. Okay, so, in space. so if, forget, let's say Jeff X wants to la launch rockets, and Jeff X is a, is a United States-based company, but Jeff Zikistan says, you have no liability, don't worry, or you don't have to be regulated and our fees or such, and Jeff X launches out of Jeff Zikistan, and something bad happens. Uh, so even if Jeff X has somehow escaped liability, Jeff Zikistan is still a co-signer and possibly the United States is because Jeff X exists out of the United States. But certainly Jeff Zikistan, whether it likes it or not, has, if it's part of the UN anyway, has co-signed on it. That's great. Okay. So somebody somewhere is on, on the hook, maybe more than one. Yes. Okay. And liable and responsible. Perfect. And, uh, now, more than one state can be a long, it really hinges on two things. One is the definition of a launching state, which is found uh, in some detail in the uh, liability and registration conventions. And it's a state from whose territory or facility something is launched or a state that procures the launch. So that uh, it's pretty broad. And, uh, but in Article 6 of the Outer Space Treaty, it calls for the uh, appropriate state to authorize continuing super, uh, supervision. And in Article 8 of the Liability Convention, it specifically says that um, ownership is terrestrial. In other words, a company or a nation on Earth 
that owns something, in, uh, that puts something into space, that ownership is terrestrial. Okay. All right, so that, that is the Hooke's theory, not theory, it's the Hooke's doctrine as part of, in this international article. I mean, not all countries are member states of the UN, but the chances are those countries are nowhere near uh, being spacefaring nations yet. All spacefaring nations have ratified the Outer Space Treaty, not necessarily the other ones. And um, they, but the, that amounts to about, I believe about 105 nations ratifying the treaty and another 30 or so signing it. Okay. So that we're talking approximately 135 nations of the 193 United Nations. It's about two thirds. Uh, but even Iran and North Korea, we often consider rogue nations that uh, are a little unpredictable in what they'll do in space, um, did ratify the Outer Space Treaty before they launched anything. So I think that's significant in terms of um, the world recognizing their obligations. Now, how they recognize them and the details, of course, we can get into a long discussion on that because they're they're different. Well, you are the professor and you're the one who's probably used to talking to people about this. Um, is it time to get into those details or is that premature? We can talk about it a little bit. Why, why don't you lead and ask some questions about it and then I'll respond. Okay. So which pre precepts or which, which concepts that we've discussed, uh, you know, are, what, what do you see as being the problems going forward with space or issues? It doesn't have to be problems from both an economic and law standpoint, since you live in both worlds, uh, and where do they conflict? I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sort of a simple guy. I think about, you know, I know what I hear. I see, you know, space commerce, you know, that you're going to want to mine, you know, stuff off the moon or, you know, or, you know, some rock that's floating out there is a hundred percent, you know, uh, the stuff that you make lithium batteries out of, or, you know, or, or whatever, you know, what they had on that movie, Netflix, Netflix, don't look up, you know, the, the phone company said, don't blow up, don't blow up the asteroid. We, we need it. Um, you know, that, that kind of thing. And, and I know that, that, you know, those rocks are made of things and some of them are going to be heavy metals or, or you know, uh, you know, that's the same. Let me stop you right there. Yeah. We now know that, as you mentioned, there are rocks up there that may have things that are useful. Right. In them or around them, whether it's water or minerals or whatever. We didn't know that a number of years ago, but we do now. Right. Just knowing that is interesting information. Whether they have value here on Earth is a different question. And none of that has been answered. And whether they can be at a cost-effective, um, in a cost-effective way, actually, I'll use the general term mind, although I don't play about that. We don't necessarily have to dig to get everything. Um, uh, and and are, are useful is yet another question. We have plenty of minerals here on Earth. Some of them are in pretty remote locations, and many companies have lost a lot of money trying to get some of these valuable minerals 
out of the earth here on earth. How do we how do we prove that these investments are anything more than interesting research right now? Frankly, a lot of economists and others have tried to create models to show their value. None of them close in a business case. Right. Right. So the, let's not jump too far ahead uh, based on Hollywood or uh, a wishful desires. I'm not saying it won't happen. I'm not saying it couldn't happen. I'm just saying what we know today isn't sufficient to be worried about, uh, about the, those uh, rocks and minerals. On the other hand, we have to be prepared because we're going up there. We have, and uh, one of the principles of the Outer Space Treaty, as mentioned, is that of non-sovereignty in space and on celestial bodies. So we all own it together, and nobody owns it at the same time. How we go up there and actually uh, look for, find, and maybe try to use resources is a legal question. And uh, can we do it? And, uh, and what are the prospects? And we are going to do it. The technology, I don't think, is in question these days. The risks are there. That not everything's going to work right. But the fact is we can get there and we can look. And other nations can do the same thing. Right. So you clearly can't have two people or two objects in the same place at the same time without some sort of agreement on how you're going to cooperate. The space treaties are aimed at just at making those types of agreements and cooperation and peaceful purposes. Trying to define peaceful purposes, trying to define how we do go about doing that internationally is being discussed today as an open question. We don't have a clear mechanism for doing that concerning the resources. On the other hand, we have the precedent in particularly geosynchronous communication satellites of an organization called the International Telecommunications Union, which dates back to the 1800s, and it is a a forum, a place where national representatives and industry get together every couple of years and they negotiate agreements about the use of spectrum and where satellites are placed in space as well. How enforceable those agreements are is, is a question, but it does in general work that the nations abide by um, the uh, the joint decisions they come to negotiated decisions through these ITU me, um, uh, meetings and, and interventions. So, if that's a model for other things in space in the future, limited, um, limited use, limited property rights may be a possibility, but the details have they have to be worked out. Yeah, very early in, in the game, yeah. uh, practically, politically, in addition to my, you know, science fiction, you know, I've already invented the technology to 
get harvest materials and bring them back here. I, I understand that we're ahead of that. You know, but people will invest in it, as, as you've said, in companies and states. People are investing in it. Uh, you know, how many? Five, six, well, about seven, eight years ago, there were a couple of companies who uh, deep uh, space resources and planetary resources that had uh, plans to. Leftovers? Or the DMV Number 97. or house cleaning or Chumba Casino always brings the fun. Play over a hundred different games online for free from anywhere. You could redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. Live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. We're prohibited by law. T plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details bring things back, mine the asteroids, whatever. Right. Uh, and in fact, the, uh, the efforts of those companies led to a 2015 um, congressional uh, law about, uh, for the United States anyway, about allowing ownership of uh, objects obtained in space. That law doesn't say how we obtain them, doesn't say anything about a, uh, a claim, but it, it at least opens the door for companies to own and private uh, entities to own things that they may acquire in space. Um, both companies went out of business, <laughs> uh, so that it, they were premature, but, um, and that law, which I'm very familiar with, actually uh, pretty much cemented what had been U.S. policy going back to the Apollo moon rocks. So that, uh, and nobody complained when the U.S. government said we own them. Right. Uh, Russia owns some materials brought back from space, uh, from planet, uh, planets, or from the moon, I mean. And um, Japan went out to asteroids and has some uh, dust and uh, samples that they've analyzed, so that um, we're not alone in this. Right. Um, the last administration passed an executive order saying something to the effect that U.S. companies could mine and harvest resources of celestial bodies, but you can't own it. Um, a, does that executive order, did the Biden administration reverse it or touch it? And does that executive order, I mean, did that does it hold any weight? I mean, is that within the executive, with the, with, within the commander of chief's purview to do that without Congress, uh, you know, or international? Uh, I mean, what uh, what legal and practical uh, effect did, did that order have? Really, there was nothing new with it. Okay. And it doesn't say that the, um, uh, it doesn't provide for, only, uh, it doesn't prohibit only. It followed that 2015 law. Now, there were some things in there in detail we could go into that perhaps were overstatements, such as, uh, well, anyway, I don't want to go into that now because we're getting too much in the weeds. But the um, it was more of a um, an endorsement for companies to go out there. Okay. Legally, uh, executive orders can be reversed. None of them have been. So that... Uh, you know, even the space policies, uh, until we have a new space policy, the prior administration's space policy is the uh, the one in force. 
Often these things do get into legislation at a later date, but, uh, but not always. Yeah. There's a lot of groups out there from academic groups to NGOs, uh, you know, trying to make or influence based policy. Uh, you know, there's uh, issues like light pollution, de policies of de decolonization. Uh, that's okay. Uh, all things regarding commerce and whatnot. What do you think should be the near term uh, and maybe midterm things that people should focus their efforts on? I mean, people, you know, collectively, uh, you know, or if there's a distinction between private industry and governments, um, what, what should people be focusing on trying to hash out the rules? I mean, is it maritime law? Is it, is it, uh, like uh, how the airlines work and airspace, something different? Space law really comes from many different um, uh, prior uh, legal regimes. So there isn't just one model out there. And uh, we're going to have to develop, uh, take the best from all the <laughs> and most applicable from other regimes. I mean, uh, maritime law goes back uh, many, many hundreds of years, and uh, some of the sovereignty issues are analogous. Uh, most air law really comes out of the need to transport people and cargo, uh, and so it comes it, it comes more from the um, commercial area spaces. Uh, the space commerce really is something more uh, that came later. The space effort, the space program, really in many ways akin to um, something like the Manhattan Project, which was a very large, huge investment with a time deadline. And, uh, and it was all government. We do have, of course, commercial, private nuclear, or civil nuclear power plants, just as we have some commerce developing in space, uh, in space these days. So there are some things we can, some lessons we can learn from um, uh, prior experiences, but just trying to oh, apply another regime directly into space won't work. Right. I mean, so, for one, it's three dimensions. Yeah. I mean, I'm not even sure maritime law fully goes underneath the surface <laughs> all the way. Um, well, any uh, you know, in the sense of um, uh, thinking about um, issues of um, recoverability of ships and uh, salvage value, salvage. there is maritime law. But interestingly, if it's a government boat or vehicle, there are no salvage rights. We have no salvage rights in space at the moment. Some proposals want to go up and take parts from defunct satellites and put them back together into making something working. Well, you run some different risks there. For example, if something goes wrong, you've got that liability issue I mentioned earlier uh, that's different from the maritime environment, different from airline environments. Right. So that uh, we've got to, in some way, when we know what the it is, we don't really know what that's going to be right now. We can think of many different scenarios 
and we're going to have to solve these problems in a practical way, really, probably incrementally. Are you worried at all about governments relying too much on private companies and a result is like the Hudson Bay Company or the British East India Company? Uh, or do you think that we've learned as a, you know, as a race, uh, as a species uh, from mistakes of the past and to that as imperfect as governments are, it's better to do this through international government cooperation than let the private sector lead? Or do you disagree with that? I'm not sure we always learn from the past. I'm not sure either, which is part well, of why I have this series. <laughs> of that. Uh, but uh, I think, the, the, again, nations have very different approaches to the way they work with companies. In the United States, from day one, NASA, for example, spends uh, of, its, uh, of the money that it has to contract to spend, about 80% of it goes to companies. Now, the way the contracts are written may be changing a bit, but the fact is we've always in the United States been dependent on companies. And in the United States, the government's always had a policy of not owning equity shares in private companies, except for very limited uh, circumstances and short periods of time. We've had some examples, but not, not over the long term. Even other uh, capitalist democratic societies approach that differently, as we know, in Europe. They've socialized companies, government's taken them over, and then they privatize, and then they have interlocking uh, boards of directors, and governments are permitted equity shares in, in companies. Um, then you have Russia and China at very different systems uh, in their relationship. So am I worried about uh, private companies in space? Not particularly. It depends on how we manage, authorize, oversee what those companies can do. I think the primary concern is to me is safety. Safety in space, safety from re-entry, safety um, uh, and, and security and consistency in policies that will enable uh, us, us and others to progress logically and responsibly in space. Right. Um, who do you think would or should take the lead in that? We're sitting here in the United States. I think we're biased. Sure. The United States spends uh, invests our government perhaps about half of, uh, of the total investment worldwide in space. It's logical that we could take and have it taken in the past a leadership position. Clearly, world politics are a little different now than they were even a few years ago. So that predicting how nations will follow or if they'll follow our lead is an unknown. I think they will. Many of our like-minded nations already have taken that Artem the Artemis Accord issue where there's not much new in there. It's really a restatement of the treaties. It's non-binding, but it sets up agreements for the gateway Artemis programs going to the moon for cooperation between the United States and other countries. And there are, I think, about 21 nations now that have signed it. That's significant. 
mm-hmm. and uh, and indicative of a willingness to follow a lead. Now, will all nations in the world do that in the, in the same way with the same types of agreements? I doubt it. But we all, space is also very much a global enterprise. If something goes wrong up there, it affects everybody. So that it is to everyone's advantage. And that's what we mean by space sustainability, to make sure you try to keep things safe and in line so that we can use space and others too, now and in the future. So you're an optimist. Or you're optimistic about it. I'm not asking if you're... Yeah. trying to be practical uh, as well. I don't know that it will happen that way, but I do think it's possible that we can uh, be optimistic about it. Well, there's comfort in that because you're also an economist. You're a professor of economics. So that's usually where, I mean, it's usually follow the money. And so uh, the law often comes later, you know, <laughs> so. Uh, well, I, you know, again, not every uh, government, not every, civil, uh, every nation um, is a follow the money type of, um, of nation. I mean, you know, you, you have, I'm not even, I'm not sure, I don't think that China, for example, or even perhaps Russia, is much more dependent on policies set by an individual or, or a group of individuals in the government rather than it is follow the money. I think in Western democratic capitalist nations, yes. Okay. Well, I, th- I think even in at least Russia's case, um, sort of was about enrichment. I think that maybe he's seen that maybe not checking on where all the money was spent has made him think his military was 40 years more updated than it was. Anyway, that's, that's an entirely different story. Um, what should I have asked you or what didn't I ask you that is important for you to get across due to my ignorance or my meanderings or, you know, just not knowing what to ask? Oh, that's a tough open-ended question. I know. <laughs> uh, I mean, we could look, for example, we, there's a lot of literature about space debris out there right now, particularly in low Earth orbit. And I think it, it is not constructive to talk about space debris in a general term. There are many different types of debris, ranging from large defunct satellites that are, uh, that if something happens to them, will create more debris, the so-called Kessler snowballing effect, to natural junk in space, which is up there that we can't do anything much about, to the very small parts uh, that can be very destructive of some um, equipment in space. But, and, and, and there's no question that it's a growing and a, a potential problem as we launch a lot of small satellites in the low Earth orbit. We can deal with that if we want to. We can regulate the number of satellites, the orbits, where they can be, just so, for again, for safety and sustainability reasons. We haven't done that yet. We haven't even started to think about that, let alone in other nations. But... When you think about what's the riskiest thing in space, 
the, the loss of a satellite on launch is still about 5%. It's high. It's not like getting on an airplane. Right. Flying one. The loss of a, uh, let's say, a communication satellite or the electronics in the satellite in the first few months of operation is also 5 or 6%. At least today, what is the probability of losing a satellite from a collision with debris? It's virtually zero. So I think it's it's good that we're spending money and trying to find out exactly where things are to prevent accidents and to look at the question of space debris. But when you look at it from a business or even a government point of view, are you going to cancel a project, a launch, or a program because of debris? Not today. You have more higher risks of um, uh, of losing your asset up there from different from other elements. So that um, the difference, though, between a perfect storm type accident in space and one, let's say, on the oceans or on the highways with congestion is that you can clean up right. what we do on Earth. We don't have the ability yet to clean up space. And even if we did, we don't know how much it would cost. Right. And I think, uh, I think that's, that's one of the major questions out there that we're really skirting and, and talking about, but not really getting involved in enough yet from a regulatory and legal process. And it may be very difficult to do that. Yeah. And I think sort of embedded in your point somewhere is that, you know, we, we know a square foot of the beach, but the beach is the entire East Coast. You know, there's there's so much sand there that we can't even possibly account, and we just know the surface level of that square foot, if even that. And there's stuff moving all the time. And you know, it, it, only until recently did we theorize that they were interstellar objects, but there have been. What what they are is the subject of in imagination and debate. But there's been interstellar objects too, and uh, so it's. It, Maybe we should map it first or find a way to map it first before uh, plunging headlong into the abyss. Um, And maybe I should slow down on watching Outland and The Expanse and things like that and thinking it's right around the corner. Movies are enjoyable, but they are still a lot of imagination. Indeed. All right. Well, as I get smarter and as I learn more about this through uh, working with the Space Court Foundation and the groups that they're with and then learning from their expertise, all of these people more expertise than me and talking to folks like yourself, maybe I'll reach out to you again when I have a more, you know, more pointed things that are uh, better. But, I, you know, my audience is probably generalists anyway, uh, so it's probably good to get this, you know, 101 primer type of uh, uh, discussion. And I really thank you for your patience and your accommodation. I know you're not feeling 100%, so I appreciate you keeping the, the commitment. And uh, thanks very much for joining us in the garden. And if there's, I don't know if you have any books or anything, if you want people to follow you, if there's anything to promote, I always make a free promotion zone. Usually the, the professors are like, nah, unless you're coming to the GW and you want to buy my book. But yeah, uh, but I don't know. Well, or take our courses. Yeah, take our courses, sure. Okay, good. No, I've, I've enjoyed it and uh, look forward to another time. All right, excellent. Thank you very much. Have a great day. And thanks, everyone, for tuning into Garden Views. And uh, you'll hear from us again next time. Bye-bye.
We touch, I feel a rush We clutch, it isn't much But it's enough to make me wonder what's in store for us It's lust, it's torturous You must be a sorceress Cause you just did the impossible Gain my trust Don't play games, it'll be dangerous if you fuck me over Cause if I get burnt, I'ma show you what it's like to hurt Cause I've been treated like dirt before you And love is evil Spell it backwards, I'll show you Nobody knows me, I'm cold Walk down this road all alone It's no one's fault but my own It's the path I've chosen to go Frozen in snow, I show no emotion whatsoever So don't ask me why I have no love For these motherfucking hoes Blood-sucking succubuses What the fuck is off with this? I've tried in this department But I ain't had no love with this It sucks, but it's exactly what I thought it would be Like trying to start over I got a hole in my heart But some kind of emotional rollercoaster Something I won't go on So you toy with my emotions So it's over, it's like an explosion Every time I hold you I wasn't joking when I told you You take my breath away You're a supernova I'm a space-bound rocket ship and now I'm still My body aches when I ain't with you, I have zero strength There's no limit on how far I would go, no boundaries, no lengths Why do we say that until we get that person that we think Gonna be that one and then once we get them, it's never the same You want them when they don't want you, soon as they do, feelings change It's not a contest and I ain't no, no conquest for no mate I wasn't looking when I stumbled onto you, must have been fake But so much to the stake, what the fuck does it take? Let's cut to the chase, but a door shuts in your face
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You've decided to move and picked the neighborhood you prefer, but how much home can you afford? Which loan term is best? Start by contacting an Arundel Federal Savings Bank loan officer to get the numbers you need and a pre-qualification letter to present to your realtor. No cost to you. Whether building or buying, Arundel Federal wants to be the local community bank that you trust and think of for your home mortgage. Contact us today at arundelfederal.com. A pre-qualification is not a loan approval or commitment to make a loan. Additional terms and conditions apply. Member FDIC and Equal Housing Lender at MLS number 671636.